0: Welcome to the Healthy Human Revolution podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marvis, and welcome back. Dr. Jabir, how are you, sir?
1: I'm good. Thanks for having me back.
0: Thank you. And um, just for those who aren't familiar with you, you're an addiction psychiatrist who's a researcher and expert in mindfulness and training and how to help people overcome addictive behaviors, which is incredible. And so we have some really interesting stuff to talk about today it's about a new course that you've developed which is i've already been through them and it's amazing and i need to go through it again because i didn't even get to absorb even an inkling of the wisdom you're sharing so can you tell us a little bit about the course and who's it for specifically or not for or whatever
1: yeah i'd be happy to so it's it's really for anybody in the helping professions and, and in particular i use examples from the healthcare professionals so uh, physicians um, health coaches, anybody that's trying to help somebody work with any unhealthy behavior, mm-hmm. we use some examples like um, overeating and anxiety because those are some of some of the common problems that many of us work with but they're they're just examples that help us really understand start to understand how our minds work and we put this together because I was really surprised how little people actually know about some of the basic uh, science around how habits are formed, and in particular, the, the growth in mindfulness training and the research therein. Um, there's a lot of, of hype around mindfulness, and I wanted to make sure that people understood you know, what it is, what it isn't, um, how it works in the brain, and then how all of these things come together so we can actually help people literally hack their own reward based learning systems uh, to live better lives. So that was the, that was the aim.
0: That's awesome because I really think it's important when you describe that word mindfulness, right? Cause I had a completely different picture of what mindfulness was before I understood and met you and became more educated about that process. I thought it was like the meditation and just clearing out the mind and, you know, but it's actually, it's a much more, it's being involved in the moment and just being like an observer with curiosity, which is really cool. So this is not willpower, right? So can you tell us the difference between willpower and mindfulness?
1: I'd be happy to. So willpower involves a part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex. Actually, if you think of your brain right here, it's, it's at this this part of the brain. It's the, the youngest and the newest part of the brain from an evolutionary perspective. Uh, and it's also the first part of the brain that goes offline when we get stressed out. Uh, so willpower, think cognitive control, think see a donut, don't eat the donuts and eat salad instead or something like that. Or what I learned in medical school is, you know, if you're trying to lose weights, well, there's this formula. You probably win this too: two calories out versus calories in. Mm-hmm. And just make sure you have more calories out than calories in. Seems really simple. Come on, prefrontal cortex, you can do this, right? And the prefrontal cortex says, says you know, I'm hungry. And <laughs> it goes offline. You know, when we get hungry, when we're angry, when we're stressed and we're tired, all these things that lead us to wander into the kitchen late at night. So you know, it's not something we can rely on, um, but it is the basis for most uh, weight loss programs. For example, where they say, "Oh, Yo, you, you know, here's a point system. Just make sure you don't eat too many calories, or make sure you do this, or make sure you do that." Um, so that's you know, that's willpower. There's a lot of research showing that willpower is more of a myth than muscle, hmm. uh, and part of that seems to line up with this being you know a young part of the brain from an evolutionary perspective. Um, it doesn't. It can't really compete with these older parts of the brain that are more survival-oriented.
0: Hmm. Wow. Okay. So it, I think it would be really um, empowering to tell people, you don't have to rely on willpower to break this habit and get healthier, but we have something better to offer you.
1: Yeah. It seems a little crazy. And a lot of folks in our eating program... <laughs> They, they, they. It's like they're holding on to their, their seats. And they're, are you, are you serious? Because they've never even considered mm. what we suggest, which is to just go ahead and eat. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yet, pay attention when they do, and we can unpack why that's the case later. But that really involves a very different uh, part of the brain, and, and we go, we talk about this in the course.
0: And. I have, I'll, And I'll just say from experience, I've used even the little bit. I mean, I'm just a newbie in this whole field, learning from you and other things that you've recommended reading and stuff. And I'm starting to even just use a little bit of, I know, with patients already. And it's already, they're just like, there's like their little brains are just like, poof. You know, they're like, what? this? That, and they're like, that really makes sense, especially when you talk about the anxiety mm-hmm. and how it's a loop and it feeds into itself. And, you know, I'll have patients explain their anxiety to me. And I said, do you see how that's a loop that's feeding itself? And they're just like, oh, wow. And I really like this part. We'll get to that in a second too, is that you know when you mentioned one of your uh, patients or people who participated in your Unwinding Anxiety Program, how they had thought of themselves as an anxious person, Mm -hmm. but now they've removed themselves from the feeling or the bodily sensation of anxiety, which gave them power, which allowed them to see what was going on and then address it appropriately. So really cool. So now that we've tantalized them with this information, so tell me, can you tell us a little bit about how our brains actually form these unhealthy habits to begin with? Maybe that will be the easy way to start this whole process.
1: Yeah. And I'll give a short version of it. We've actually just put out a, uh, an animation, a 30 minute animation that explains the neuroscience of how our brains form these habits. And it's actually called everyday addiction. So people can go to just go to drjudd.com and find that. Uh, But the the short version of that is is that this is an evolutionary process. Um, Our minds are, you know, our brains are actually set up to help us remember where food is. And so you're talking about these habit loop pieces where it's, it's a trigger behavior reward process where we see food, we eat the food, and then our stomach sends a signal to our brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. So the idea is through reward-based learning, so the rewards of eating are getting calories and this dopamine hit, um, that drives memory formation that says the dopamine's actually there to say, remember this as compared to this is fun or exciting. That part got layered on later through probably through marketing, where they're like, "Oh, we can use this to get people to buy things." Mm-hmm. Um, so the survival mechanisms very old, very 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 old. You know, all uh, evolutionarily conserved all the way to the oldest nervous systems that are that are known in science. Um, yet in modern day these systems are still in place when food is plentiful. And that's where, that's where the trouble begins, um, whether mm-hmm. you know, the same ne- mechanisms are used to learn to stress eat or to smoke cigarettes or even, as you were pointing out earlier, to form habits around anxiety. Mm-hmm. You know, if, we're, if our to-do list gets really long and then we see it, that triggers us to, get, to start worrying whether we can actually get it done. And the result of that is that we actually can track down in this tight little ball of anxiety which doesn't help get the work done, right? That hmm. to-do list doesn't get done when we're thinking, oh, no, I can't do this, when our, when our poor little prefrontal cortex is going offline. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, but like you're pointing out, we, we often don't see these as, as habit loops themselves, yet they're being learned in the very same way that our brain was trying to help us survive by helping us remember where food is.
0: Hmm. So I almost think procrastination could be a habit too. (laughs) Because you're like, huh, this is how I can avoid my to-do list. I'm just not going to do it. I'll procrastinate by social media browsing or that is a
1: huge one. And we get that a lot in our Unwinding Anxiety program. We have a live weekly group and and very often it comes up, how do I work with procrastination as a habit loop? (laughs) And the first piece of that is just recognizing that it's a habit loop. is really, really helpful for them that they've already started to understand that black box of their mind, as compared to not knowing how to work with it, and, and then just going and looking at you know cute pictures of puppies on Instagram or whatever as a way to distract themselves from right. feeling bad that they don't know how to work with procrastination.
0: It, it seems like so modern day. The modern day world is just so full of things that are our poor little brains just they're, they're just not ready to deal with. I mean, we have everyday stresses, but our body, you know, there might be minor stresses in the sense of survival, but our body still senses as stress. So our prefrontal cortex is like, I'm done for the day. (laughs) By 8.30, that email list is too long. I'm done. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So then tell us, so we kind of touched on mindfulness. Can you give us the scientific, you know, Webster Dictionary definition of what mindfulness is.
1: <laughs> so I feel like I need to put on a bow tie to give you this definition. <laughs> yeah. there's, a, there's a nice academic definition um, that's probably used most in the, in the research uh, that was put forward by Jon Kabat-Zinn around, you know, bringing the awareness that arises when we pay attention on purpose in the present moment and non-judgmentally. Hmm. which has a lot of elements to it. But if you think about it, it really brings the um, the focus on two things, which is awareness. So being aware of something, but also bringing an attitude of curiosity. Uh, he talks about non-judgment, which can be a little conceptual for some folks. But if you think about it in terms of really not deciding ahead of time whether something is good or bad or being pushed or pulled by something, but simply bringing awareness to it and, and going, oh, and... and you know, what is this and bringing just this um, awareness that isn't already deciding whether, whether this is good or bad, or we're going to do something about something.
0: Hmm. So I think, yeah, I think key is awareness, right? Cause we so mindfully do habits as what habits are there for. So we don't have to think about doing something like driving a car or doing anything. So very good. So there's so much that we could just even probably do an entire interview just on the definition of mindfulness. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Well but folks I, can look at the second module of our <laughs> of our healthcare provider course and it actually unpacks the definition quite a bit and gives a lot of examples.
0: Yeah, it does absolutely, and I'm now I'm really sad that I haven't seen this thirty-minute video yet because your animations that you have and the actual model modules are really entertaining. So this is this is not a boring, you know, lecture you drawing up here. It's actually very, very good. So and, and you and you share your personality and your sense of humor as well, which is great. So um, the other thing that I'm curious though, so with mindfulness, how can this actually be used to make the brain change? Like what? Is it like, so, okay, we become aware and curious and in the present moment, non-judgmentally. What does that mean? And how does what part of our brains are actually being affected? Like, how is it
1: changing? It's a great question. My lab has studied the neuromechanisms of mindfulness using fMRI and EEG and other modalities. And what we found is that with uh, meditation practice, there's a part of the brain or a network of brain regions called the default mode network. That actually gets pretty quiet now. The default mode network, and there's a whole—I think—module six. We talk about the default mode network in detail, but in in very brief, um, a brief, brief summary of this is the default mode network is a self-referential network that gets activated when we get caught up in craving. It gets activated when we get caught up in rumination or perseveration, like with anxiety when we're worrying about the future and getting stuck in that. Basically, when we get caught up in any aspect of experience. And that can literally be felt as this contraction. You know, it's like if I'm, if I'm anxious, it feels contracted, like, oh, no, I'm not going to get my to-do list done or whatever. Mm-hmm. The contrast to that is it's hard to describe, but it's basically this expanded quality of experience that comes with letting go. So if we're, you know, if we have balance or we're equanimous quantumist with something where we, you know, there's an experience that's happening, but we're not pushing it away or we're not holding on to it. Um, that helps us really, you know, be with something. And as we're being with something, we're not contracting around, we're not holding on to it, we're not pushing it away. We're simply bringing balance. Now, it turns out that this network of brain regions, and in particular, a region of it called the posterior cingulate cortex, it gets really activated when we get caught up in craving, whether it's craving cigarettes or uh, cocaine or gambling, uh, even it gets, it's trying to get activated when adolescents get a bunch of likes on Instagram.
0: <laughs> you talk about that. That's actually really good. I, I actually, actually listened to that podcast because you mentioned that. <laughs>
1: yes. Yeah. So there's a study at UCLA that showed this pretty nicely. They actually linked up the reward centers, the nucleus accumbens with co-activation of the posterior cingulate cortex. So this network of brain regions, the default network, gets activated when we're caught up in stuff, and it gets deactivated when we're simply being aware of what's happening in our experience and not being pushed or pulled by it. So we can think of this as letting go or simply resting in awareness uh, and being with whatever uh, is happening.
0: So it's almost coming from a subconscious to a conscious level. So we're we're, we're leaving that. uh, We're just opening the door and saying, okay, let's watch and see what happens. And that just shuts that down.
1: Yes, yeah, let's watch, let's be with this experience. We're not being indifferent, you know, kind of saying, I'm going to watch from over here, mm. but we're simply you know, being very present and, and actually even more connected the more present we are, which lines a lot, up a lot. We'll maybe talk later about a- empathy and empathy fatigue, but those two are very, very uh, tightly, I think those are highly related.
0: Huh. Okay, so then, yeah, so this default mode network is it? Is it? So it's part of the old brain, then. So our willpower doesn't really have control over it. Is it's how how does those how does the front part of the brain and this work together, or do, or do they?
1: I the two haven't been shown to be so. There are a bunch of networks, and some of them are co-activated, and some of them are anti-correlated in terms of when one's active and another is deactivated. Mm-hmm. I think of the default mode network as kind of this, um, you know. It's like the <laughs> it's like the conductor of an orchestra uh, trying to conduct an orchestra, but the orchestra actually knows how to play itself without the conductor. Actually, conductor is not the best example. So think of it as an orchestra playing with a conductor, and then the business manager of the orchestra comes in and kicks the conductor out and says, "I'm going to direct this orchestra." The orchestra works much better without the business manager coming in and trying to do stuff. Mm. Um, but, you know, the business manager doesn't know this. He thinks, oh, I, I'm good or whatever. So you can think of the default mode network as like trying to orchestrate things and trying to say, okay, do this, now do this, now do this. And quickly gets overwhelmed because we start worrying and, you know, getting getting caught up in stuff, which actually mucks up the system a bit. and It doesn't work as well.
0: Gotcha. So, wow, this the brain is this three pound mass, <laughs> it does so much for us. I mean, it really is between the ears whether you're healthy or not. It, it really is. I mean, it's decisions. Well, mostly, I shouldn't say everything, but
1: plays a big you know, role,
0: it, a, oh. a huge role. Um, I, and I think that's you know, when I first became really really interested in just the discussion of habits, I mean, because it, it really was never a true discussion. And because in medicine, because I'm a primary care doctor you know, you're always telling, they tell you to tell your patients to lose weight. You, you know, they say lifestyle interventions are the first thing you should be doing when you have someone with hypertension or diabetes, but they never teach you how. Obviously. They certainly never speak about habit loops and speaking to your patient or even speaking to yourselves. Like, well, let's look at yourselves, doctors. First of all, you're going to need to walk the talk. And so, you know, we never learned that. And so, When I started seeing these amazing things with lifestyle interventions and people are doing this, like, well, why were you able to lose 200 pounds and you weren't able to lose 200 pounds? What's the difference? So that's when I started interviewing people and I couldn't quite get it other than there was this, something shifted and now I'm beginning to understand it was a big part is mindfulness. When I look back now at 150 interviews of, you know, different people and I, of all my patients, the ones who do it became mindful of the situation and what was going on. And made a decision. It was really interesting.
1: Hmm. Yeah, and we even see this now more and more in the public sphere. I remember a news article about Kathy Bates, the famous actress, uh, who had lost sixty pounds basically just paying attention as she was eating, and realized you know if you stop eating when you're full, (laughs) you eat fewer calories. So she was based, and she said, you know, it was it was mindfulness that really helped me do this. That's what we set up our entire Eat Right Now program around is is to not have people go on some diet that they're more likely to fail, but to simply start helping them bring awareness to what's actually happening right now and actually tap into, this is what we talk about, I think it's it's in seminar three of the seminar series for this healthcare provider course, where we're, we're just showing people how they can tap into this reward-based learning system. So if you know how it works, if you know that reward drives behavior, not the behavior itself, mm-hmm. you can start to notice two things. One is if you pay attention when you eat and you see that overeating doesn't actually feel very good, that reward value drops in our brain. And there's a part of a brain called the orbital frontal cortex that stores reward value. And it says, okay, it's not as rewarding as before. And then we can start to bring in what I think of as the, the BBO, the bigger, better offer, which is mindfulness itself. When we pay attention, when we're eating, we can actually savor food that tastes good. And we can stop the moment that that, that uh, taste starts to change because our you know eating some chocolate... Bliss point. Uh, yeah, it, we can notice that the bliss point drops. And it's like, it's good, now I'm good, I'm done. Mm. And so even that helps boost that differential of... You know, okay, when I overeat, it doesn't feel very good. When I eat and really savor food, it tastes really good, and I can stop when I'm full. Mm. And with these practices, you know, in our in our first study of the Eat Right Now app, we got a 40% reduction in craving-related eating because we can really help people bring in this mechanism that works really, really well to help them, you know, help them survive, yet is actually literally killing them by overeating. They can just hack that system and use simple practices to really dramatically change behavior.
0: So it's interesting. So this is, that's what I really liked. And I think that really clicked with me going through this because we have talked many times before and I've, you know, read stuff. And I'm looking at that going, the reward is where we should be focused, not yes. on the behavior. Because, you know, a lot of things that when they talk about, even they talk about the habit loop is changing the behavior. Um, and then people go, oh you, oh, you can fall back into these old habits because of the, whatever, if, you know, something disrupts the new behavior or whatever, but if we focus on the reward itself, this is where we actually truly break the habit for good. And that's where I see these people who've been so successful, they can be in the heart of their previous you know, craving. Like if they saw chocolate and they're like, it can't stop them. But now they're like, oh, there's no reward for it to me anymore. And that's really what it is. They've consciously brought forward the reward. So I, is that what it is? It's... Um, the mindfulness is actually bringing that there was a reward that you didn't even know about before. So mm-hmm. now you're like, well, what is that reward? Is, this, is it worth it? So, I mean, that's really interesting.
1: Yeah, huh? and again, you know, it's really based on these brain <laughs> mechanisms. If, you know, you, if behavior, you don't just change behavior. That's not how our brains work. Okay. So that, that reward valuation system is actually this little part of the prefrontal cortex called the orbitofrontal cortex. That's the BBO part of the brain. And so that stores old reward value, and then it can update that reward value when we get accurate information. But we only get accurate information when we're paying attention. When we bring awareness to what's happening, then our brain actually sees, oh, that is not as rewarding as I remembered, right? And okay. because I just laid it down in habit is like eat a bunch of whatever. And, you know, and you know, I'm thinking of one of my patients who literally used to numb herself, she was binge eat, had binge eating disorder. And she would eat to numb herself from emotional pain. And she realized that that was actually just driving more emotional pain because she beat herself up for binging. Oh, wow. So she learned that, okay, here's my old habit. I can actually step out of it and I can substitute something like self-kindness mm-hmm. because that's what she really needed. She, mm-hmm. You know, Eating pizza wasn't gonna fix that. It was just gonna numb her and it was just gonna make things worse. She was, her BMI was over 40. She was really in, in bad shape. Yet she, you know, she went through our our early version of our Eat Right Now program. She lost forty pounds. But the piece that really blew my mind was she said, you know, she was binging on twenty out of uh, twenty out of thirty days a month. She'd binge on entire large pizzas. So really, really rough go at things. She uh, she was able to she stopped binging and was able to literally eat a single piece of pizza. And she, as she described it. I could eat a single piece of pizza and actually enjoy it.
0: Yeah. So
1: it wasn't the object about, okay, just avoid pizza, right? Because that doesn't work. Right. But it's about changing a relationship to it and seeing when I overeat, it's, it doesn't feel good. It actually just makes things worse. And when I bring in something that feels better, like self-kindness, the actual thing that I need, then that orbitofrontal cortex says, you know, I'll have more of that, please. The kindness feels better than just indulging in a bunch of pizza. Huh.
0: So when you're telling someone, so let's say, okay, so you have this person who's, you're telling them to eat, right? They're normal, varied, but it become mindful of the process. So here's someone, I want to just kind of maybe unwrap what's going on in their mind. Like, what is this thought process? Is there, you're utilizing the exercises that you teach. So, okay. So I'm eating, here's my pizza that I binge on every two, three times a week. Okay. So here it is. I've been through Dr. Jed's course. And what is that process? So what is the questions that they begin to ask each, themselves and can you just kind of walk us through maybe a, a, an example of sure. what that would be?
1: Sure, and we lay out a three step process. I think it's in the third um, module of the course. I think so. Um, where it's basically step one is just mapping out those habit loops. So, what's the trigger, what's the habitual behavior, and what's the result? Uh, usually, that mapping starts right at the behavior. So, if somebody's in the middle of a cupcake they can wake up and see, oh, I'm in the middle of eating a cupcake. The behavior hasn't changed at that point, but they're just noticing it. And they're starting to map out that habit loop around their mind, just like you described with the the worry early on. Oh, we can start to notice this is a habit loop. Mm -hmm. Step two is where we really start to dive into how rewarding these results of the behaviors actually are. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'll use smoking, or we could continue with the eating example. So when I eat four cupcakes, How does that feel in my stomach versus just eating a single cupcake? And so that reward value gets updated, and our brain says, oh, four cupcakes, not so good. And then we start to become disenchanted with the old behavior. No willpower involved, right? So I say, go ahead and eat. Just pay attention as you eat. And we have people ask a simple question like, what do I get from this? So that they're really dropping into their direct experience. Not an intellectual answer like, oh, I know I shouldn't eat this. That's Mm -hmm. intellectual but really dropping into their direct experience and seeing what did I get from this? Oh, I got a stomach ache. Okay. Not that helpful. Or I just read somebody's a journal entry from our eat right now program today where she was saying, you know, I noticed I ate a piece of cake um, and it tasted really good, but an hour later I totally crashed and I had, you know, I felt really sluggish and I realized it was because I ate a bunch of cake. Mm. And so even noticing the results, as long as we can link them up to the direct behavior, that helps our brain become disenchanted. That's when we can bring in these, you know, the bigger, better offer. And so when we see that this old way of being isn't so great, our brain starts looking for something better. So this is where simple things like uh, kindness, curiosity, um, and we've got a bunch of practices in our our apps that help people, uh, help them ride out cravings or help them work with anxiety and and bring kindness to themselves, but basically these awareness practices involve some form of curiosity and or some form of kindness, Hmm. so that's the third step.
0: So that empowers them to be kind to themselves, So I think a lot of people beat, like you mentioned, beat themselves up, and so then there's shame involved and guilt, so I have a question, because you are a psychiatrist, (laughs) Um, so, you know, when I have worked with, you know, the mental health professions in the past, trust me, I think it's a remarkable thing people do, because having to deal with a lot of mental health stuff just as primary care, to do it on a daily basis, I can only imagine. Um, It's a tough job, and it's not like I can measure, you know, someone's depression. Here's a drug for you. Here you go, blood pressure, whatever. Um, But I'm curious, when you look at traditional uh, psychotherapy, a lot of times it's, oh, let's go back to the past. Let's work through the you know, the traumatic childhood injuries um, and not saying that that doesn't need to be done, but that a lot of times they try to connect this current behavior with that, with this experience. And if we resolve this, that that would fix that. So yeah, how, does, how would that, for me, it seems futile, but it almost too makes it more difficult because when I've spoken to patients regarding their experience with that, and I'm not saying that it doesn't work for some people, it's just... My one, you know, person in one experience with patients is that they almost feel bad because someone else experienced something just as devastating and they don't have these situations, at least that they're aware of. So, how, yeah. how does that relate to a current thought? Yeah.
1: On yes, and so, you know, I had traditional psychodynamic training, you know, I was, I was um, alongside, you know, the, the other trainings that I had during residency, uh, what I would say is, you know, something that happened in the past is something that happened in the past. All we can work with now is what's happening right now. And so if we have a cert- if we're feeling a certain way or having a certain experience now, that's what we get to work with mm-hmm. and whether it started in childhood or not, isn't as relevant as, what we're dealing with right now. Hmm. So what I have people do is really just focus on how these habits are perpetuated now, Hmm. you know, if they're, so if they were, you know, whatever happened in childhood, if that's still happening now, I want to know that, right? So (laughs) if somebody has domestic violence at home or, or something traumatic that's happening to them now, okay, let's, we need to take care of that now. Right. Right but if that's not happening now and their their memories are kind of, you know, driving that process forward, then we can work with those we can work with those as thoughts and we can work with those as feelings that are coming up in the body right now and seeing how okay here's a here's a thought and an emotion that's driving me to do something now that might have, you know, it might have been a threat in the past but we can ground ourselves and see oh I'm I'm safe now Hmm. so that we can start to step out of these old habit loops. And this doesn't have to involve a ton of you know, time on the couch and this and that. I'm not, you know, that can be very helpful for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But as, a, I, you know, as an addiction psychiatrist, like I take a very pragmatic approach, which is, okay, what can I do right now to help my patients who are suffering? Right. It's not going to involve you know, years, of, years of therapy. Can I help yeah. them understand how their mind works? Can I help them take that information right now and start to break out of some of these old habits? They might recognize and resolve some of, some of the things that happened in the past along the way, great. But right now, let's work with this habit loop and, and we don't have to get stuck in you know, what can, can be complicated. Um, right. it, Absolutely. it doesn't have to be complicated.
0: No. So it's almost like, so thoughts provoke, provoke emotions, and then that builds that anxiety, that feeling. So you're, you're basically maybe breaking a, a habit loop that those memories or those experiences are creating in the anxiety and the eating. And so that's where the mindfulness can be helpful for even those past traumatic experiences, even if they are tied to a certain behavior currently.
1: Yes, yeah. And I'll throw in a caveat there. You know, if somebody's working with somebody with a a severe trauma history, it's really important that the person that's doing this work has experience working with trauma. So I'm not Mm -hmm. just saying, you know, anybody can go out there and and work with somebody that's traumatized. And and trauma, unfortunately, trauma is pretty prevalent. So I just want to have everybody be aware of that. Uh, That being said, there are a lot of folks where we can actually work with these habits in a way uh, that is, that is pretty effective.
0: Absolutely. So get the care you need to take care of yourself, but also there's things you can start working with yourself with the mindfulness practices that can maybe even, you know, push that to a higher level from not just bringing you back to a baseline, but thriving. So that's cool. Okay. So we have a few minutes left. I know you have a time, a time committed here, but can you just tell us briefly and we're, we're going to do another podcast on this on empathy versus compassion or empathy empathy, empathy burnout cuz i think that would be a great teaser for the next podcast.
1: Yeah, i'd be happy to and this some describe this in terms of epidemic proportions in healthcare today where clinicians are really really getting burnt out, you know, with this, you know, the the autonomy is re, is going down, the electronic medical record is forcing us to stare at our screens instead of be with our patients. You know, there are so many things contributing to, uh, you know, a, a big surge in, in burnout in clinicians. So, you know, we can think of, I think of empathy or I've, I've learned it in terms of empathy fatigue, you know, where, you know, we're, we're supposed to empathize with our patients so that we can really understand where they're coming from. And mm. you can think of empathy as putting ourselves in our patient's shoes and so if our patients are suffering, that's why they're coming to us, not because they're particularly doing well. They're usually coming because they have a problem. Yeah. So if they're suffering and we're putting ourselves in their shoes, we're suffering. And if we do that 40 hours or 60 hours or 80 hours a week, that's a lot of suffering that we're taking on. So, of course, we're going to get burnt out. Yeah. So we can think of empathy, I think of it in terms of a habit loop, right? So the trigger is we see our patients um, suffering. And then the behavior at first might be, I'm going to get in there and help and fix them. <laughs> mm-hmm. And sometimes it might work. You know, we give them a blood pressure medication and their blood pressure normalizes and then we feel good. And so we're like, okay, great. I'm a, I'm a good doc. And then we start becoming identified with, I got to fix all my patients. Right. And then somebody comes in, you know, with, um, with CHF or with, you know, with diabetes or something that's uncontrolled and, you know, it, your their blood sugars are out of control or whatever, and we come in there and we're like, oh, crap, I don't know what to do. And we might throw everything we can at them, yet, you know, they they're come back and they haven't lost weight and they haven't, you know, gotten their blood sugars under control or whatever. And so we, we see them, you know, the trigger is seeing them on the patient list and we're like, oh, no, I have to see this person today. Um, and then the behavior might be to protect ourselves because, you know, oh, no, this is, this is oh, you know, this doesn't feel very good that's the natural response. It's the, you know, it's like, don't go to our danger. Mm-hmm. And so then the result of that is we, we protect ourselves. We might feel better in the short term, but then we start to become depersonalized. Uh, we start to really, um, you know, wall ourselves off literally. And so that leads to burnout. So there are all these things around, you know, we, we lose our connection with patients. Um, we feel exhausted, you know, all these things around burnout. So that you know, it actually fits a habit loop pretty nicely. Mm -hmm. And if we understand how that works, then we can start to work with it. And we can bring, you know, specifically mindfulness is about not taking things personally. Mm -hmm. So if patient's suffering, that's the trigger, the behavior is to take their suffering personally, and then the result is burnout. If the patient comes in and they're suffering, and we learn that actually this isn't about me, right? This isn't about me taking on their suffering this is about being with the suffering, we can actually learn to be with it in a very different mode where the suffering is there, we're not collapsing under the weight of the suffering. It's not like we're distancing ourselves, but we're simply present with it because we're not worried about protecting ourselves. That's a very different stance and and compassion naturally arises in the face of suffering. So I think of it as flipping, is empathy is taking somebody's suffering personally, Whereas compassion is being with that suffering, but not from a self referential standpoint. So, if we're, you know, if our default mode network isn't getting all activated and we're getting caught up in their anxiety, if we're actually noticing it and not taking that personally, we can actually be there. And when we don't take it personally, we can actually be more connected with our patients. Hmm. So, that connection helps us give a very different result. One, we don't get burnt out. And two, it frees up our prefrontal cortex to actually do the thinking because it's really hard to think when we're all stressed out. Hmm. But when we're, we're not stressed out, we can say, OK, here's the issue. We can bring in a compassionate response, which actually helps us make better decisions and not get burnt out in the process. So hmm. that's kind of in a nutshell how we can flip this. And we can actually hack this reward-based learning system simply through bringing awareness to what's happening and noticing, oh, am I taking this personally? And practicing not to take it personally, not that it happens overnight, but through continued practice, we can actually do this. And just as an example or a teaser, maybe, we did a study with our Unwinding Anxiety Program with anxious physicians, and we got a, we got a 57% reduction in anxiety. And we also, we asked a couple of burnout questions. We got a 50% reduction in emotional exhaustion, Wow. or, or I think it was depersonalization. It was one of these two pieces The other was also reduced quite a bit as well. But there's a strong correlation between anxiety and burnout. Mm -hmm. Um, So there are components of burnout that we can actually directly address that are individual. We also need to address the institutional pieces. But if we're less exhausted, we can actually go in and and address those institutional pieces as well. So that that might be a little teaser we can certainly
0: That's a good teaser because that's another hour conversation. (laughs) Uh, and I'm really just in the last minute we have here. I really think it's important that patients can detect that, right? So they understand. They don't, you know we we understand empathy and and suffering with those, you know, taking it on personally, and you worry about them, and you almost feel the the stress, the tightness, like you said in the in the chest, like oh, this patient's here, and I'm, oh, you know, they're just, they're not listening or whatever. But if you step outside of that and become curious about the. I, I consider it curiosity about the patient's situation yes. and I start asking more questions and I pull myself out of and I'm just here to be kind of a guide. That's yes. how I look at it. And I speak to them asking all these questions because I'm so interested in their experience and how I can help them guide them to better health. That is so different because patients are like, you ask a lot of questions and I really appreciate that. And that is where that connection, I think it's a much greater connection than taking on the suffering. So.
1: And healing begins there yeah. with that connection. That's actually been true. Nice studies on this. <laughs> that connection helps our patients heal. Nice. And it's, boy, isn't it much nicer to be connected with your patients?
0: Oh, my goodness. It's highly <laughs> addictive, too, because you become excited, right? Because when patients feel that connection, they're more apt to actually take the advice that I give them. And people are asking me constantly, like, well, how do you get so many people to switch over to a whole food plant-based diet when I can't even get them to take their medicines? I'm like, Let, let's talk. How are you talking about your patients? Are you walking in with a computer all grumpy? Or are you sitting down and saying, what is your experience? And you can do that in a short period over time, building that relationship with that patient. But yeah, absolutely. So, okay, I've gone one minute over past your time, but...
1: Well, and some of that, just one more plug for our our course. My hope is through these, you know, it's seven, like 15 to 20 minute modules. Through those modules, people learn enough of how the habit loops form, you know, all this stuff. There are two specific modules on... Um, clinician empathy burnout and how we can actually bring compassion in. So that's actually baked into this process. And, And like you've already discovered, there's this real joy. We can actually bring the joy back to the practice of medicine, which is beautiful.
0: Which is wonderful to be able to now, after going through your course, to actually sit back and then reflect on your own practice um, techniques, I guess, and to actually see, ah, that is the point where I can explain to people, this is what's successful and what's not. So yeah. absolutely. So thank you again. And I will put the link towards the course, everyone. And I'm, I think honestly, like pastors and health coaches and nurses, especially, and therapists, everyone, like you said, helping professions, firemen, I don't know. Even parents, they're, we're a helping profession.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely.
0: I have to figure out when the helping ends actually. So going into a quarter century of this parenting thing, but you know, I think there's so much that we could do. And we had mentioned a little bit before we talked about mindfulness with kids, it can be done. So anyway, so thank you again for your time. We so appreciate you.
1: My pleasure. Thank you. Bye.